Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. The population decline in Japan is quite serious, and many people in the world, including the United Nations, has been telling the government that the current policy is really not sustainable. Japan needs more immigrants, and not just temporary migrants, but permanent migrants. In this episode, grappling with a plunging population in Japan. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Japan is a member of a reluctant club of countries, including Italy, Greece, and much of Eastern Europe, in which national populations are nosediving. Japan is the world's tenth most populous country, with over 125 million people, but with a stubbornly low birth rate and very little inward migration. In 2017 alone, Japan lost a net 400,000 of its people, and the population continues to shrink at an average rate of about 1,000 people per day. The Japanese government knows this is no mere demographic dip, and that it has implications not only for the nation's highly developed economy and industries, but also for social welfare and even the very cultural fabric of Japan. Whether it's getting people to have more children. Or using robots to replace disappearing workers, Japan is looking for answers. They're even planning the previously unthinkable: importing migrant workers on a massive scale. So, how did Japan get here? What are they going to do about it? And what lessons does Japan's predicament have for the rest of the world? To discuss how the world's third biggest economy is contending with this rapid population decline, migration and diversity researcher, Associate Professor Nana Oishi of the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, is with us. Nana, welcome to Ear to Asia. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I just described the general problem. The numbers really tell the story, don't they?、Yeah. Japan had an enormous population increase just after the war in the last century,、mm-hmm. but it's really been crashing in the last decade, especially. What's been going on? As you said, Japan's population grew throughout the 20th century. It almost tripled in its size, but the birth rate started declining since the late 1970s. Our fertility rate right now is 1.4, meaning that a Japanese woman gives birth to 1.4 children on average, which is obviously not enough to maintain the population level. And in 2010, the population started declining. Japan is the fastest shrinking country in the world. The country will lose one third of its population by 2100. It's a quite a serious situation right now. By the way, though,、um, Japan is not in a unique situation. Most industrialized countries are having low, very low birth rates. For instance, the fertility rate of the United States and Australia、um, is 1.8 for both countries, which is also not enough to maintain the replacement level. Just like Japan. So if we don't have immigration,、uh, our population in Australia will shrink. So we can maintain our population only because immigrants are contributing to filling the shortage. But immigration hasn't been a big strength of Japan. Has That's、it? right. That's the reason why the government is now finally taking the step to change the situation through immigration. We'll explore that in a moment. But it's not just about numbers, is it, Nana? Because it's the more detailed demography we should be looking at, and that's about age, isn't it? Because Japan, like a lot of other industrialized countries, you just alluded to. We've got a bulge, the baby boomer bulge, I suppose you could call it, exacerbated、right. perhaps in Japan by the fact that there old people tend to live longer too. That's right, because of the medical technologies have been advanced, and a lot of people live longer. And 
that's one of the reasons why we are the oldest society in the world. And 33% of its population is now over the age of 60, which is quite a huge percentage, I have to say. And what about the, just in general terms, as people get older in Japan, perhaps mm-hmm. they've been working for corporations in the cities, the men particularly, but out in the country, of course, things are different. What sort of social security context are we talking about here? Right. Well, I'm glad that you asked that question because social security issues are quite, quite serious in our country. And then the people are very concerned about it. There are many fears about social security because the Australian superannuation, for example, is basically that everybody contributes a certain amount of money for their old age, and then the money will stay until they retire. In Japan, everyone who's contributing the money to the Social Security Fund is actually used to support the current elderly population. So basically, the younger generations are supporting current old generation. So if we have fewer and fewer workers in the future, that means that the sustainability of the Social Security system will be in great question because there might not be enough people who could support the older people, not enough people to support or like pay for their pension fund. Pay for it and physically actually look after them, exactly, I suppose, too. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So let's just emphasize, we talked about old people, but how bad is the situation in Japan for the drop in younger workers entering the workforce? Well, that means that there will be a huge labor shortage, which is already happening. It's biting now? It's starting to bite now? Oh, definitely. definitely. That's that's one of the reasons why the government is finally taking the step to open the market to more immigration. Yeah, there are labor shortages everywhere. Um, In agricultural field, basically, the majority of the foreign workers are technical interns who are actually workers, but they have the status of interns who don't really pay full um, minimum wage. Yes, so low wages, they're working as, as you're described, interns within Japan. Right. That, that's the current situation. Right. So it's very similar to backpacker situation in Australia in, in farms. So just like backpackers can never get permanent residence status here, those in technical interns in Japan cannot get any permanent residency or citizenship in the future. So it's just for temporary status and they just do the farm work and after several years they just leave. They can stay up to um, five years, but after that they have to go. So Shinzo Abe's government has moved quite briskly recently against some opposition, I might say, to change this. Please describe this legislation, which is only just being passed through the diet in Japan. Right. So this new law is aimed to increase the number of foreign workers, migrant workers. The Prime Minister Abe declared that it's not immigration policy. It's just a temporary migration policy. But in any case, the biggest change that this law is making is that the number of migrant workers will be quite high, much more so than in the past. And the types of workers who are coming into the country will be quite different. In the past, the government basically declared that we don't have any unskilled workers, unskilled migrants in the country. The only migrants we have are skilled migrants. So the professors, doctors, etc. Gold collar workers, the IT workers. IT workers, right. But no construction workers, no care workers can be officially allowed to immigrate to Japan. However, this new law allows migrants in 14 different sectors, which used to be considered as unskilled sectors, um, for example, construction, care work, agriculture, food processing, 
etc. So the shipbuilding, hospitalities, the, all those things used to be perceived as unskilled sectors. However, those people who are coming to Japan from next year onward will be in these sectors previously defined as unskilled sectors. What has been the primary motivation for the Abe government to move on this right now? Um, obviously, there are just not enough people who could work in those sectors, and particularly in agriculture. Um, a lot of regional areas are really clamoring for the workforce. Mm. I mean, a lot of people, young people are coming into cities and they don't have enough people to work in farms. And they already have technical interns already working in farms and fisheries. And yet the number is still not enough. So to maintain the economic vitality in each regional area, the government had to take a decision to do this. So to be clear, the response of the Aupai government is to that economic impact as as the workforce starts to drop, particularly the younger workforce. So ultimately, it's not about renewing the population. It's about responding to an economic demand at the moment. One major difference in this law is that after working for five years in Japan, and if they actually demonstrate their skills, then they can actually become permanent residents in Japan and they can bring their family members. For the first five years, they cannot. But then after five years, once they pass the exams and tests, um, demonstrate their proficiency in Japanese, and then they can actually bring in their family members and stay in Japan for good, which is a huge difference, which was really never allowed in Japan before. So this is a huge breakthrough. It's a breakthrough, but some of the polls are showing that there's quite a lot of opposition within the general Japanese population against this legislation. Right, that's true. Um, Yeah, there there are several polls, and I think previously, in general, Japanese people are supportive of having more immigrants in society. But after this law was passed, people were quite concerned with the actual number of people who are coming in, which is, according to the government, 340,000 people within the next five years, which is quite high. And a lot of people never actually thought that it would happen in reality. So people began to feel like, wow, there are a lot of people who may not speak Japanese fluently, are coming to live in the community all of a sudden. And the government is really not providing enough sort of secure measures to ensure that everybody will be getting language training, etc. That's not in the legislation at the moment? Well, they said they'll try to provide language assistance, but it doesn't really specifically say that what kind of language programs for how many hours. For example, in Germany, the government provides 600 hours of language training for each migrant. The government provides resources for that. But in Japan, this legislation doesn't say, for example, like in each migrant will get you know, a certain number of hours of language training or anything like that. One can imagine a manager of a fish farm somewhere that has three or four new migrants arrive who don't speak much Japanese, quite a lot of pressure within even the workplace. Right, exactly. And the government is basically saying that each company which will hire migrant workers should ensure that those workers will get some language training. The company. Right, right. And the government and the local government will also provide some support. But it doesn't really specifically say how much support will be given. So everything is sort of like up in the air. Um, The government recently stated that they will provide quite a bit of resources to the major cities, which are likely to receive these migrant workers. But nobody really knows exactly how much will be allocated for language training and all those people will 
really fully understand Japanese language. So I think people began to feel a、um, bit uneasy about so many people coming in all of a sudden, and they might suffer too. The migrant workers also suffer too because of the the lack of understanding of the language. But the government also issued a statement that. It would conduct Japanese language exams in seven countries, major source countries in Asia. What so, What are those source countries?、Um, like Philippines, Vietnam, and China, etc.,、like、Indonesia. So the government decided to conduct those exams, language exams, and make sure that only those people who pass the basic language exam will come to Japan. We're talking about low skilled workers, but、mm-hmm. you've also referred to the the higher skilled workers already in Japan, right? They sit in a different cohort altogether. They are they are able to bring their families. They are able、yep. to、uh, seek promotion within the big corporations, etc. How does that work out for the high skilled workers? As some sort of indication of how things might work out for lower skilled workers. Right, right. What has been the experience, say, of Germans or Italians coming into Japan to work within the big corporations? Right. Well, the highly skilled workers in Japan are doing quite well. I mean, they receive the same wages, same salaries as Japanese. But the Japanese government has been trying to attract those highly skilled workers from other countries, simply because we don't have enough workforce in certain sectors such as IT and finance. In other areas too, Japan is actually the number one country in terms of the labor shortage in the skilled workforce. So、um, the government has been really making efforts to change the policy to attract skilled workers. For example, we now have a new point system. And actually, if you're qualified enough, you can actually get the Japanese permanent residency much faster than Australia or any other country. So it's the fastest path for permanent residency. But I guess the problem is that a lot of highly skilled people who come to Japan don't really stay for too long.、Um, according to my interviews with、uh, human resources directors, they said 90% of the skilled migrants. Leave within ten years. Even in Australia, though, thirty、uh, percent of skilled migrants leave after ten years. So it's really not the migrants don't stay for good. That's that's everywhere, but ninety percent is still very high, and that used to be one of the reasons why a lot of Japanese companies were hesitant to hire migrant workers because they knew that they won't stay for for good. Whereas Japanese workers tend to stay longer, but recently they realized that young Japanese people also tend to leave relatively early too.、Um, so they began to think that they should not really differentiate between Japanese young workers and foreign workers. They're now trying to hire people on an equal basis as long as they perform really well and skilled migrants speak good Japanese. No, no, that ninety percent figure indicates to me that people are leaving for、mm-hmm. a, a whole set of reasons. Can、right. you? Can you home in and see what those reasons are? Sure.、Um, I've been interviewing a lot of highly skilled migrants in Japan, and a lot of them want to stay in Japan, but they also face a lot of challenges. There are several reasons why they decided to leave Japan. One big factor is career development path. Many of them feel that they cannot really get promoted to a higher level when they look at management people. They're all Japanese, and then they don't really see any. Migrants or foreigners in there, and they feel like there's no role model for them that they could look up to, and they don't really feel that they will be successful in the company. 
is seniority still a big factor in all that? Yes, yes. For them to be successful in the company, they need to stay in the company for a very long time, and that's a big issue. Another issue is the work-life balance. Um, many of them feel that they have to work very long hours, and which is fine when they are really young. But then once they get married and have kids, they begin to feel that they really don't want to just work for the company. They just want to maintain their sound family life as well. They want to spend more time with their kids and spouses as well. Even recreation. Yeah, exactly. They just want to have both, right? Work and you know, happy family life, right? So that's one reason. And another reason is the children's education. Many of them want to raise their kids in a multicultural environment where kids can learn English. But in Japan, there are not many schools that provide that kind of environment. And they can put their kids in an international school, but international schools usually cost like $30,000 a year. And the companies don't subsidize. So if you have two kids, if you have to pay $60,000 a year, that's a lot of money. The salary for young people is actually lower compared with other industrialized countries, including Australia. So it's really difficult for highly skilled people to do that. So many people actually leave Japan when their kids are reaching the school age or when they reach the sort of secondary school age. And finally, a lot of highly skilled women from overseas are having difficulty in Japan because they feel that gender equality is really not embraced in their workplace. And they often feel uh, women are discriminated against in variety of settings, and they feel that they are not equally treated as men. So this gender inequality is pushing these highly qualified, very talented women from overseas to other countries. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark with Asia Institute sociologist and migration expert, Associate Professor Nana Oishi. We're talking about how Japan is coming to grips with a dwindling population and a fast-looming labour shortage. So far, Nana, we've focused on these new laws, the uh, migrant laws, but there are other policy settings going on, aren't there, to try and tackle the other part of the equation, which is the fertility rate and the and the declining birth rate. What sort of policy settings are emerging now in terms of, I guess, you know, assisting parents have children? Well, the government is trying to um, build more childcare facilities. Is that a problem in Japan, childcare? Oh, yeah, there's a huge shortage, particularly in cities. So there are lots of kids who cannot get into childcare. Has that been identified as one of the big disincentives? It's one of the biggest problems. One of the reasons why a lot of parents are hesitant to have kids because they know that it will be really difficult to put their kids into daycare. And then that means that women cannot go to work. They have to stop working. So it's a big issue. If that fertility rate stays stubbornly at 1.4, the mathematics is very clear. So what other policy settings are moving into place right now in Japan to try and lift that fertility rate? So, for example, the Japanese government is trying to encourage Japanese companies to stop the practices of long working hours. 
because that's one of the biggest reasons why people try not to have more children. If everybody has to stay in the workplace for a long time and they can't leave the office until nine or ten, my husband used to work until three a.m. Sometimes when he was busy, it's mostly about men. Mostly men, but if the women are on a career track positions or in a managerial positions, they also have to work till really late as well. So if you have kids, and you know, basically, you really cannot sustain your lives. Another another policy that's emerging is having people stay in the workforce longer, pushing that retirement age later. Right, keeping people in the workforce longer is definitely ma- making sense, but at the same time, a lot of young people express their concerns. According to some reports on the internet, young people are basically saying that their positions, their opportunities, will be taken away by old people. And now the government is trying to to make people work until. Age seventy, um, so that they wouldn't have to pay the pensions, um, old age pension, earlier. But young people are really not happy about that kind of option because obviously their career opportunities will be affected by that. But older people are obviously very happy that they can sustain their economic situations longer. Shinzo Abe's government. Um isn't hugely popular at the moment, and I've just been reading some of the news coming out of Japan after this legislation went through with a lot of opposition. A lot of this is going to depend on general population receptivity to the changes to the migration and some of the other policy settings. Do you feel, from your analyses, that the general Japanese population is strongly enough aware of the problem and what may be needed to correct the declining fertility rate? I think people are very welcoming the government's、um, policy to boost the fertility rates, like making more childcare facilities and encouraging companies to stop making people work long hours and stuff. But at the same time, many people are concerned about the new immigration policy that. That was introduced recently, and、uh, well, it hasn't really happened yet. We will start having new migrants from next April, so people are really、um, concerned about that. If there were a change of government, and that will happen eventually,、uh, Abe's been in longer than a lot of Japanese prime ministers. If there is a change of government, could that whole policy be just expunged and the migration not occur? I don't think so, because the. The population decline in Japan is quite serious, and many people in the world, including the United Nations, has been telling the government that it's really not sustainable. The current policy is really not sustainable. The United Nations data says that the the Japanese population will be shrunk by one third, even without. The United Nations advised the Japanese、uh, demographers, and the government demographers have already known that the country's population will be even shrunk further than that. So the objective data shows it's really indispensable that、um, Japan needs more immigrants,、um, not just temporary migrants, but permanent migrants. We've been talking about inward migration, and we've made brief allusion to the fertility rate and having more children, which seems quite a stubborn problem in Japan. What about culturally? It's very, very hard, isn't it, historically, to imagine a multicultural Japan? Yet, as part of the solution to that dropping population, that may be where Japan has to go eventually. But there are strong cultural resistances to that, aren't there? Yes and no, because we already are quite multicultural society. Even though Japan is perceived as a sort of monocultural, homogeneous society, but in reality, we have lots of people who are 
who have multicultural backgrounds. We have more than two million foreigners living in our society. And in some areas, there are quite a few of them, and they are really full members of society. And for example, I'm doing research in Niseko and Kuchan, which is both towns are in Hokkaido. And there are lots of Australians and Americans and British working and living in those areas. And they are the ones who are actually turning the sort of depopulated areas into global tourism spots. And what we need in Japan is those people who are talented, you know, who are highly skilled and who can coexist with Japanese with no problem. Some of them don't speak fluent Japanese, but it's fine. As they can still make great contributions to the economy and they can really change the, the small towns into a great tourist spots. And mm. Yeah, there are a lot of areas where non-Japanese people, foreigners, are really making a huge impact. So I'm quite hopeful. And mm. as long as we have skilled people, you know, highly skilled people and people with immediate skill sets, I think we should be able to make it work. Mm. I've just been in conversation with an academic colleague of mine, just spent a year in Japan in a city not far from Hiroshima in a university there. Mm-hmm. He spoke no Japanese. Very little English was available to him. He had an assistant who spoke English, who did all his translations. He found it a very difficult year in terms of communication. How big a hurdle is that Japanese language in company with not that much English in Japan? Well, I guess um, if you are in a workplace where very few people do understand English, then that will be quite difficult. But more and more workplaces are becoming bilingual. I must say, um, particularly in big cities. In the countryside, it's difficult. But for example, the, the towns that I was talking about, uh, Kuchan and Niseko, those places are now bilingual. The entire towns are bilingual. So if we have enough sort of critical mass of skilled workers, then um, we, the, the situation will change. We've been talking about inward migration. Mm-hmm. Japanese also have an interest in outward migration. Right. Um, and what are the risks there and how do the Japanese people generally feel about Japanese leaving Japan? It's really true that more and more Japanese people are leaving the country these days. And right now, 1.4 million Japanese people are living overseas and about half a million of them are permanently leaving overseas. I actually looked into the data more closely and I found out that 12.5% of the country's net population loss is due to the emigration of its citizens. So the population aging or population decline is not just happening because of more people dying or fewer babies are born and stuff. 12.5% of the loss comes from people who are leaving the country, which is a major problem, I think. What draws them away? I've been interviewing Japanese immigrants in Australia and Singapore and found many people decided to leave Japan for various risk concerns. One of them is natural disasters. Japan is expected to have more major earthquakes. Earthquakes, possibly more tsunamis. Yeah, and volcano eruptions. And many of them also felt the concerns about sustainability of social security systems that we talked about earlier. A lot of them felt that there will be fewer people in the future. And that means they won't get old age pensions because there will not be enough workers to support them in the future. And the overall economic prospect was a big concern as well. And because of these sort of future risk concerns, not the current 
risks that are happening. But the future risk concerns are actually pushing more and more skilled Japanese people to other countries. So they're quite rationally based risk assessments that, yes, are, yes. that are convincing people to leave their home country to right. find a better life somewhere else, but particularly right. the risks for themselves and their, their children, I guess, and their right, families. Right. So many of them actually chose Australia because Australia doesn't have nuclear power plant. The nuclear power plant issue was one of the biggest decision factors for migrants. That's very interesting. And by way of contrast, now we think of Japan as robot central and we see a lot of robots emerging in all different settings, the big industrial robots, even the domestic robots and the company robots. Is that a possibility that robotics could be part of the answer to both the skill sets required for relatively simple tasks and even more complex tasks? Can Japan meet some of the need in the workforce by robotics? It's a difficult question. It's really hard to say yes or no at the moment. At least at this point, I don't think robot technology can replace workers, really. Um, It hasn't really reached this stage. It has been highly developed, obviously. For example, like moving and lifting the elderly's bodies. Robots are really being utilized in different workplaces. But I don't know how fast the technology will be advanced in the future. Personally, I don't think robot will be the answer to the labor problems in Japan. Maybe in constructions or agriculture. I guess it really depends on the area. Journalism, some people said even laws could be partly replaced by artificial intelligence. So there are a lot of areas in the future where robots and AI could replace workers. But there'll be always some areas which require physical labor. And I don't think these technology will entirely replace workers, particularly in elderly sector and these sectors that involve more emotional labor and human relationships between care providers and care recipients. Final question, Nana. As we step back from this, it seems that we've got some policy on the move, um, increasing inward migration. There are some targets being set trying to raise the fertility rate from 1.4 to about 1.8 and um, having later retirement ages, etc. But in your opinion as a sociologist, how successful do you think Japan's going to be in the next couple of decades in stemming the decline in the birth rate and in the fertility rate? To be honest, I'm a bit pessimistic um, because I used to work for the United Nations and I know that my boss used to go to Japan and telling the government many, many times that they had to take actions. That was in early 1990s. And even at the time, we felt it was already late to start boosting immigration. It never took place until this year. So it's been like three decades. And I think um, I looked at various projections, population and immigration, and I think it was a bit too late already to fully recover the birth rates and population level. But it's never too late to try to sustain the population level. And even if it's too late, we still need to keep doing that. And Japanese people would have to get used to the idea of having more diversity in the community members. And we need to learn how to live with them um, and how to interact with them and how to help them as well and, and learn from them at the same time. So as a final piece of advice to other countries, particularly developed countries like Australia, United States, who are facing similar problems with perhaps not as low a fertility rate as 1.4, but approaching that, what advice would you give them? Perhaps 
start thinking about it more deeply now? Well, there are several things. Um, for example, a lot of studies have shown that financial assistance to couples will actually help increase the birth rates. That has happened in France, Nordic countries, in other places. So definitely providing financial assistance to people who have small kids will be a very important step um, to increase the birth rates. And secondly, what we need is to maintain these highly skilled migrants who came to our country. The same for Australia, same for Japan. And a lot of people who are not treated well, they just leave to other places. Uh, it's not just bringing in people will solve a problem. We need to retain good people in our workplace. And for that, we need not just diversity policy, but diversity and inclusion policy uh, to be installed in every single workplace so that everybody feels welcomed and everybody feels that he or she is included. And that would really help the immigration policy to really work. There's probably no more fundamental challenge than facing up to a declining population, whether it's Australia, Japan, and it's one of our closest partners, Japan, is very interesting to us. And this is a very interesting topic. Thank you so much for being with us today, Nana. Thank you very much. Our guest on Ear to Asia, Associate Professor Nana Oishi from Asia Institute, University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 18th of December 2018. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Audio engineering by Chris Hatzis. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company.